Welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you, Yuang, uh, Yu Guang, sorry, I hope yeah, I... Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> and, <fine. laughs> Oh, it is, oh, thank you. Um, and uh, before we start, <coughs> let me give a short introduction so uh, the audience gets to know you a little bit. And um, Dr. Yu Guang Cheng, he's a postdoc uh, researcher at UC Davis in the Department of Physics and Astronomy. And um, he did his, um, I think you did an internship or so at the University of Arizona um, in astronomy and astrophysics. Yeah, that's right. And that was when I was undergrad, so a long time ago, almost 10 yeah. years. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, your bachelor um, at Peking University and then the, your PhD you did at the astro um, and astronomy and astrophysics um, at Caltech in uh, 2021. So, um, yeah, and then now you're at UC Davis. So um, the, if you could tell us a little bit of how did you discover this passion for research um, and going into science and astrophysics? Was it like a childhood dream? Like, you know, some people say they read the book or went to a museum and then they kind of were hooked. Or was it something maybe that came later on or a family member or a professor that encouraged you? If you could share as a with us a little bit. Thank you. Sure. Uh, first, I I just want to thank you, Katharina, for, for inviting me. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, in the in terms of the story of how I got into research, actually, that's fairly simple. Um, so, like you mentioned, for some people, it was basically visiting museums. So, for me, it was visiting a planetarium in Beijing when I was a kid. And that's when I just got interested in astronomy and that has been basically my goal uh, since the entirety of my life until now. Um, so I did my undergrad in astronomy and also my PhD in astronomy. Um, and now I'm a postdoc researcher working in astronomy research. So that's basically the uh, reason. That's wonderful that um, to hear that like a museum trip uh, that you could find like your passion um, basically uh, for the field and um, and that you enjoy it. I mean, you seem to, you know, be enjoying it a lot and be very successful. So uh, it really shows how important those like for kids, those exposures are um, you know, not just being in school and learning it in school, but those hands-on kind of museum experiences seem to be very, yeah, forming. So it's wonderful to hear that you followed that path also. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just fortunate. I consider it very fortunate to be able to continue this path. Yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, do you sometimes maybe feel also that you kind of get paid for your hobby kind of situation? Uh, yeah, from time to time, absolutely. I mean, we all, as researchers, we all know that we sometimes, especially in the fundamental sciences, 
we don't get paid well. So that's basically why so many people left the field. And also it's just, yeah, there are these monetary stuff that uh, 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 sometimes it's the price that we have to pay. Yes, I agree. And um, it's, it's really hard. I mean, you know, for us foreigners, at least for most of us, you know, he gets the visa, but then also, I, I don't know how it is for you, but we didn't have any uh, college uh, tuition credits, you know, to pay off, which is very different for U.S people in the US and that's why I think they don't stay in science, which is really sad. They kind of have to uh, move away from it, from their passion because, you know, they just have to pay back and pay their life. So uh, do, do you feel the same that we kind of? <laughs> uh, yeah, unfortunately, I kind of, so the tuition, so I, I did my undergrad in China, which was the tuition was also pretty cheap, so I, we don't have to pay uh, 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 the, a, a lot. Um, so that part, I unfortunately don't have an experience on, but I do agree with you that uh, there, yeah. So one benefit, of course, of pursuing a, a scientific career is that uh, um, the scientific world is very open and uh, it's, the, I got the chance of visiting many countries, which I think my friends who chose careers otherwise don't have this privilege. But again, the, um, I, I totally agree with you that if you have, for example, a lot of tuition to pay off, that's certainly making it worse. Um, yeah, I don't know how people would do it um, or how people do it because it's if you have a family, it's impossible. <laughs> and um, but coming back to you know your your uh, your work, and then how did you basic how did this project came about and that you got to work on this project? Is there maybe like a background story? Was it kind of just natural continuum of what you were working before or? You know, how did you come to work on this and then publish this? Maybe there's like some story behind it. Thank you. Sure. Um, so, I mean, so I, uh, so I did my PhD in Caltech, which was um, so it was related to basically. Um, so I, I was trained as an observer first. Uh, so in astronomy, there are different types of astronomers and uh, for they and different types of astronomers focused on different aspects of research and as an observer we basically come up with observing plans and uh, use the telescopes to observe certain objects on sky and then when we finish observations we analyze data and uh, come up with a research, a research paper to basically explain the observations and also what we discovered. Um, so I, as a PhD, I was trained to use a, a special type of instrument, and I'll talk about that uh, later in, in in the talk. But uh, uh, this is basically a, a an extension of 
to, to use that kind of instrument to do something else. Uh, that's both related, but also slightly extending of my PhD uh, work. So um, uh, basically, it's just the, 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 to, to, to strengthen my skill of using this type of instrument and also to, um, use, to, to use my skill on some other things. Um, and we discovered something interesting, and you will hear later. Yeah, thank you. That's interesting. You know, it's it's really interesting to hear these paths because basically the method you chose to learn before or got to learn before was kind of very important in this case for you to, you know, follow then the next steps in, in your career and the path, which is really interesting because, um, yeah, people tell different stories. Um, and um, I, I think this is interesting because, you know, I'm in neuroscience and I uh, learned, you know, complicated uh, electrophysiology methods with like two photon and things like that. And that kind of also then led me to so many projects because in a lot of places I was the only one doing that. So people came to me and asked me to do this method for their project basically so if you were if you have a unique skill that's kind of i think that's kind of good i think could we give that advice to young people yeah i i totally <laughs> agree with that as well this is exactly what come up with me as well is that i pretty much i'm very specialized on using this instrument and a lot of people when i go to conferences a lot of people will come to me of how to handle their they have observed with this instrument and they want to know how to handle the data. So I built a lot of connections in this way. Yeah, that's that's great. That's wonderful. So I think, you know, we can say if you have the patience to learn a very complicated method and <laughs> um, do it because then a project will just come to you and then you can basically choose what you want to work on, <laughs> I think, if there are not so many people around that got to learn this. Of course, you have to be in a place that has the equipment. I don't know how expensive it is, but that's kind of then the downside. Let's say I would want to move back to Portugal. I don't know, you know, there are not too many labs that have kind of, you know, two photon microscopy combined with with a bunch of other laser stuff. So, you know, that's the downside then, I don't know. Yeah, that's, I think that's true in astronomy as well, especially since I'm an observer. So observers rely heavily on the size of the telescopes. So um, I was, I did my PhD again at Caltech and now at the University of California. Both of these universities have access to one of the world's largest telescopes, which is the Keck telescope. And that's a benefit. And I, if I move to somewhere else, I have to think very hard of what I can do without the privilege of using these large telescopes. That's interesting. So there is, there are common, <laughs> common things and we gave some advice. So I think we can now move on to your research. So everyone has the slides available. They are linked on top. 
And um, the good thing is in the recording here in Clubhouse, also people in the future will have the same access to it. Um, so uh, yeah, the stage is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Karina. So um, I will uh, first thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, if you can open up the slides on Google Drive, um, I can uh, basically walk you through with the page numbers. So uh, page one right now, so it's the basically the front page. So the, this today I'm going to tell about um, the a, a paper that we recently published in Nature Astronomy um, about the accurately measuring the chemical abundance in the interstellar medium gas um, in this certain object called Mercurian 71 using a combined data from optical and infrared. So the paper is published under the same name, and I also think there's a there's a link in the chat that you can go to that there if you are interested uh, in, after you hear my talk. So just uh, give you some backgrounds um, about our field of studying galaxy evolution. So page two. Um, so analyzing galaxy evolution is really to answer one question. And this one question I think many people are interested both philosophically and also scientifically is to answer where are we from so the the way we analyze or study galaxy evolution as an, an observer um, that's myself um, is to 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 observe the universe in a way that you would think it's like a archaeologist so the are when, when you need to study something as an archaeologist um, to study, for example, a history that's very far from us, very early in the history, you dig into the ground. And if you want to dig, if you can dig deeper into the ground, you might be able to find um, something early. In studying the universe, we are actually doing something very similar, is to look very far into the universe, because light travel costs time. And if you look far enough, that light travel time will make up for, so you are actually looking directly onto a galaxy that's very young. So if you can go far enough, for example, you can go to, a, you can go to 10 billion years in, 10 billion light years, that light travel time is 10 billion years. So you're actually looking at very young galaxies. So that's the way we're actually studying galaxy evolution is to piece together this information by observing different distance um, into the universe. So in this slide, I'm just showing galaxy in the present day, which is z equals zero. So z here uh, indicates it's a, it's a number that we use uh, indicates redshift. So redshift number is small means they are close to us, and redshift is very large. That means it's very far from us. Um, so you can see on the right-hand side, those are the images, very early galaxies. And actually, thanks to the recent launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, we can actually see uh, uh, galaxies that's right, basically right after the Big Bang. So we want to understand this process by linking together different galaxies, different epochs. 
And the way of doing that, one way at least, uh, in slide number three, is that we use what we call metals. And by metals, I have to be, um, I have to say, actually really um, pay special attention to the definition here, is that in astronomy, we have a very different definition of what metals are. So metals here in astronomy means anything other than hydrogen and helium. So carbon, that's a metal to us. Nitrogen, that's a metal to us. Um, oxygen, which is one of the most important um, elements in the universe as well, and also the focus of this talk, it's also metal. And also, of course, the normal metals that we think are metals, iron, for example, those are metals for sure. So when we talk about metallicity, they really means the ratio between these elements other than hydrogen and helium uh, over hydrogen. So for example, oxygen metallicity, that means oxygen over hydrogen. Nitrogen metallicity, that means nitrogen over hydrogen. Um, so why do we care about that? In slide four, number four, is that the chemical enrichment history really actually traces how these galaxies form. And this plot shows, on the left-hand side, it shows the metallicity as a function of the mass of the galaxies. And you can see that higher mass of galaxies often have higher metallicity. And here I just mean oxygen over H, OH metallicity. Um, and the other thing you can see from this plot is that when you go early into the universe, so again, Z equals to zero, it's in the current universe, Z equals to three, that's early, and Z equals to, Z equals to three, that, that's earlier, equal to six, that's even earlier into the universe. So early galaxies have lower metallicity. And uh, this metallicity as a function of mass can actually be converted into something we call mass loading factor, which really just quantifies how strong, how strong galaxies blow out of gas. And uh, low mass galaxies have a stronger mass loading factor. That's because they, um, that's be just because the, the, they're lower mass and they the gas are they, the gas experience less gravity gravitational potentials. So the 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 outflow is stronger. And by studying that, we know how galaxies evolve. But then there's a major question. Uh, one of the major questions is that what happens at the very early universe, right? These are the galaxies that actually comes right after the Big Bang, and they have relatively low metallicity, but we want to understand what really happens there. And slide number five, the other importance of measuring metals is that they are really the DNA of galaxies. So for example, on the right-hand side, I'm showing the y-axis the, is the carbon over oxygen. Um, are there any questions? I saw you, Katharina, you have No, a... I was just ah. doing this because I really love the how you put it there, the DNA of galaxies. I'm sorry. Ah. Sure, <laughs> no worries. Thanks. Yeah. So coming back, 
on the right-hand side, the y-axis carbon to oxygen ratio, and the x-axis is the oxygen to hydrogen ratio, which is the oxygen metallicity. So on this plot, there are many points, and these points are actually measured um, ratios from different types of astronomical objects. There are star-forming regions, there are galaxies, there are also stars, and there are also some early type absorbers that uh, intervening absorbers in the universe that we think are dwarf are linked to dwarf galaxies in the early universe. So you can see they form this very peculiar V-shape in this plot. That's because on the very right-hand right side, there's a schematic diagram. So, so, norm, so galaxies come when they form, they have very low metallicity because Big Bang only produces hydrogen and helium and a little bit lithium. Um, there's no oxygen from Big Bang. So the Big Bang all comes from these uh, nuclear synthesis from stars. And uh, so, so an object in the universe comes from the very left-hand side of this plot and then gradually moves to the right-hand side. But again, different physical processes, different stars will form different types of metals. And uh, so, for example, core crap supernovae, these are from very high mass stars, over eight solar mass stars. They will move things in the lower right direction. So that's oxygen enrichment from supernovae. Later on, when there are lower mass stars, 0.5 to 8 solar mass stars, these at their late stage, they will form what we call AGB stars. And these stars will preferentially throw out a lot of carbon. So it will move this object into in, in the Y direction, move them up. So these zigzag patterns actually tell you how what the history of this particular galaxies and how they form uh, in contrast to other galaxies. So again, metals are the DNA of galaxies. So we really want to me measure metal metallicities very accurately. And number six, slide number six, I'm going to show you that we actually have a huge problem of measuring metallicity in galaxies. So there is a systematic uncertainty in measuring metallicity. And the reason is that two, what we think very direct methods of measuring metallicity differ by factor of two. So on the left-hand side, there's a comparison of nearby star-forming regions when we try to measure their metallicities, OH metallicities from these two different methods. So if there are a very important uh, acronym that you need to remember in this talk, those are these two acronyms, CEL and RL. So CEL stands for collisionally excited lines, which is on the y-axis, and the x-axis are the RLs, so they are recombination lines. So you can already see that solid black line is the one-to-one -one ratio, but these measurements you can see are offset down by about two times. So why is that? And I'll tell you, I basically have a physics recap of the emission mechanism of these two different methods. So when we measure 
the metallicity, we measure the spectrum, in this particular case, the emission spectrum of these uh, star forming regions. So collisional excitation, CEL method, we measured from the collisional excited, excited lines. So what are collisional excitation? On the right-hand side, there's a schematic diagram. So suppose, so when we talk about, when we say there's gas in the universe, we're really talking about them not in the way of we talk about, we define gas. These are actually really plasmas. So they're ionized gas. And in this case, we are mostly focusing on O plus plus, which is doubly ionized oxygen. And since these are ionized gas, there are also a lot of free electrons in the universe. So in these plasma, basically. So there's a chance that these free floating electrons will knock onto these O plus plus ions. And this knocking will kick the energy level of these O plus plus ions into some high energy levels. And by kicking them onto a high energy levels, it becomes unstable. And the way of them releasing this energy is by emitting a photon. And this photon has a certain wavelength. And we observe these photons to calculate, okay, how many O plus plus atoms are in there, and we can calculate the metallicity. Now, page slide page number seven is to is from the other method which is from the recombination lines. Um, so what are the recombination lines? It's from a different emission mechanism. These are, so again, there are free floating O plus plus ions and there are free floating electrons. There's a chance they will combine into an O plus ion, so singly ionized oxygen. And this process will emit a lot of recombination lines from basically this recombination process. And that's how we measure metallicity again from these, um, from these emission lines. So figure eight, sorry, slide number eight. Um, so how is this relevant to the uncertainty, systematic uncertainty that we care about? Um, so there's this untested assumption of trying to explain the discrepancy between the two methods. One, uh, so the explanation here is that um, the one method, CEL, which is, so again, from collisional excitation, they are actually, the, emiss the emissivity is closely related to temperature. So the electron temperature, how fast the electron moves in this plasma. Um, so on the, y, on the right side, I'm just plotting the emissivity as a function of the electron temperature of these lines. So you can see there are orders of magnitude differences. And the reason they could underestimate how many oxygen is in there is because when you have a temperature distribution in this plasma, the, you're preferentially looking at high temperature gas from these CEL collisional excited lines. So the average temperature is assuming it's a, nor it's a, it's a, it's a normal distribution, um, Gaussian distribution, I should say. So assuming it's that, the measured temperature is slightly over, you're slightly overestimating the temperature. And that makes you overestimate the emissivity of these atoms and underestimate the metallicity. So you count less number of oxygen in the media. And that's 
the untested assumption and also that's actually the major explanation of in astronomy of why we observe a, a, a systematic bias between the two methods. Now, slide number nine, we, we which is the main character of our research in this case is called Markarian 71. So the image here is a color composite from the Hubble Space Telescope. This object is reasonably nearby. It's in astronomy sense, it's uh, 11 million light years away. It's a star forming region. So we can actually see there are lots of star, star clusters in this object and all of these color-ish stuff are the neb nebula emission are the gas that are emitting a lot of these different emission lines. That's how it becomes so colorful. Um, this object was discovered by this person called Benjamin Markari, and that's why it's called Markari 71 um, and in basically 1969. So it's a, we, we know of this object for a long time, but uh, um, we just uh, want to use this object as a case of trying to directly test uh, whether the temperature fluctuation assumption actually exists in this object. So the way of doing that, slide number 10, we came up with a new method of trying to test this assumption. So, so again, this method has never, this assumption, temperature fluctuation assumption has never been really directly tested. So we are coming up with a direct test. So the, re, the, the way of directly test this is to use what we call far infrared collisionally excited lines. So again, these are CEL, so collisionally excited, but remember that optical collisionally excited lines that we normally use are very temperature sensitive. So on the right-hand side, the blue curve, that's from the optical collisionally excited lines. The beauty of these far infrared CEL is that they are reasonably insensitive to temperature. So the orange curve, that's the far infrared CEL. In this case, it's the 52 micron emission. And on the bottom, that green, dot, green dashed line, that's a recombination line. So you can see the far infrared CEL, that even though their emission mechanism is from CEL, they actually really behave like recombination lines. So we can use these far infrared CL to directly test if they is really the case. We can we will see that the far infrared CL should behave exactly like the recombination lines. And slide number eleven, the reason we can use this method is because of the special instrument. And as I mentioned earlier, which is the special instrument that I'm trained to use is that uh, what we call integral field units. And these are the integral field units mounted on the, these very large telescopes. So in this case, we used three special telescopes. The Keck Observatory, which I mentioned earlier before the talk, is the one of the world's largest optical observatories. On the bottom, there's the SOFIA, the Stratospheric Observation for Infrared, for infrared Astronomy. Um, it's actually a very special telescope mounted on a Boeing 747, which unfortunately, the, both of the 
Sophia and the Herschel Space Telescope, these have been retired, but they are specialized in observing far infrared um, photons. And slide number 12 is the special instrument mounted on these telescopes. It's called integral field units, uh, which is IFU. So integral field units are basically spe 3D spectroscopy. Um, so normally when we observe the spectrum of an astrophysical object, we put a slit. So on the top right-hand side, we put a slit onto this object, and then we disperse the photons in the cross direction, across the slit direction to observe, to, to, to disperse that and to see the spectrum. That's bad because in many cases, you missed a lot of photons outside of that slit. In the case of the integral field units, especially, for example, on the lower left-hand side, the Keck Cosmic Web Imager is mounted on the Keck telescope. You are actually taking, both taking an image of this object and also each pixel on this image, you can extract uh, a spectrum of it. And this is the special instrument that we use. And the reason we want to use is because we are actually matching the observations from very different wavelengths, from very different instruments. And by having the 3D information, we can actually do that. So slide number 13 is the observations that we've taken on this special object mark carrying 71. Um, so all of these three different instruments, three instrument packs, FPLS and KCWI are integral field units mounted on these three different telescopes. So again, KCWI is on the Keck Observatory. The FIFLS, the magenta one, that's from the Boeing 747, so it's SOFIA. Um, yellow one, it's from the Herschel Observatory, Herschel Space Telescope. Um, so the these polygons and squares, marks, really just marks the field of view of our observations. And uh, on the right-hand right side are the images taken from from these observations. So the, basically the emission line maps from this observation. So for example, you can see the KCWI oxygen trees. So oxygen three here uh, just means the light emits from the O++ um, ions. So you can see this light emission map looks almost exactly as the image on the left-hand side. So the left-hand side, there's this white nebulosity that's the, the cloud, looks like a cloud emission. That's exactly those um, emission from the gas. And uh, so here I'm just showing really these are very different wavelengths, so they have very different spatial resolutions, but with the with the 3D spectroscopy from these IFUs, we can actually match their resolutions very accurately and also compare their fluxes from the same part of the object. And slide number 14 is basically the spectrum, um, just to showcase the spectrum here. Um, so on the left-hand side, there's the full optical spectrum from this object. Um, on the bottom side are the zooming of certain spectral lines. So B section, there's the recombination lines. You can see, you can compare their flux numbers with the uh, collisionally excited optical lines, 
uh, in the plot, and you can see how thin they are. So that's why these haven't been tested very much in the past. It's because these recombination lines are actually really faint. So you will need very large telescope to do that. On the right-hand side are the emission lines from the far infrared, and those are also well-fitted and reasonably bright. Um, so that's basically the special method we use to test this hypothesis. Now slide number 15. Um, remember, if the temperature fluctuation is the cause of how we see these different, uh, how we actually see the systematic bias between the two methods, we would expect using the far infrared CEL because they behave exactly like recombination lines. They should give an exactly the same metallicity measurement as the recombination lines. However, to our great surprise, it's the opposite. So on the bottom plot, we will see the x-axis is the electron density, which is not very important. In this case, we just want to have a joint constraints of that. Y-axis is actually the oxygen metallicity. So the red one is from the optical CEL. The magenta one is from the recombination lines. So there are about a factor of two. So again, okay, so the, the units here are in log scale. So the, the point two in log scale basically means there's a factor of two difference. So which is not surprising because we've seen the difference of this and that's exactly what we're trying to figure out. The green one is the joint constraints from the orange one and the blue one. So the orange one and blue one are from two different far infrared um, CEL uh, emission. And the green one is the joint, so the green one is the joint constraints of that. If the temperature fluctuation is the cause, we would expect that green constraint to be higher, to be consistent with the recombination, the magenta ones. However, it's the completely opposite. We actually see that the far infrared metallicity is consistent with the optical CEL. What does it mean? So if we just take the CELs themselves, the collisionally excited lines themselves, and just ignore the recombination lines, we actually have a temp direct temperature fluctuation constraint of less than 1,000 Kelvin. So that means there's very little, actually very little temperature fluctuation in this object. And that strongly suggests that the recombination line is inaccurate. So it's actually the recombination lines to be blamed here, at least in this object. So slide number 16 is some of our thoughts on why recombination lines could be inaccurate. So <laughs> one possibility is that it could be that there's dust. So dust in astronomy is actually very annoying uh, because they just block things, right? So um, if there are a lot of dust, which are basically molecules that uh, is not is just basically very uh, uh, very large molecules that just block certain types uh, just uniformly blocks um, the, the the lights behind it and if dust are concentrated in certain ways 
it will preferentially block optical emission, but not the infrared emission. So if it's correlated in certain ways that dust, for example, correlates with densities or correlates electron densities or correlates with temperature, we could have the recombination lines could be inaccurate. Um, the other, from a physical standpoint, the, the cooling rate, which is basically how fast these electron temperatures cool, um, is a strong function, is a st strongly dependent on the temperature of the gas. So in the range that we are interested, which is marked by this red arrow, it's actually, this cooling curve is really steep. So that just means if you have any temperature structures in the gas, especially when the structure is very small, we it's it the, the time that these temperature fluctuations survive is really small because the cooling curve just even things out. So we really so it really challenges the theorists to come up with something that can stir up the um, the the medium very fast, constant stirs up the medium to make the temperature fluctuation exist. And so far it's been challenging. And also the recombination lines could be contaminated with other types of emission mechanism, for example, fluorescent emission. Um, near, so for example, if a nearby source that just excites the, the, the O++ ions into some higher energy levels and that higher, when this higher energy levels fall back into the ground level, it's, if it happens to just go through certain recombination lines that we care about, it could contaminate it. Um, so there are a lot of possibilities. Um, that leads to the future. Uh, the next slide, slide number 17, uh, 17 is the, uh, the um, test that we're currently trying to conduct, um, is to conduct this similar analysis into a larger sample, and also to conduct this not just on the oxygen metallicity, but also on the nitrogen metallicity. So remember different metals gives you a, an evolution, accurate measurements of the evolutionary path of the galaxies. Uh, and historically, the abundance discrepancy, the discrepancy between these two methods of measuring the metallicity only has been tested directly on the oxygen. So if you have a different type of metal, in this case, nitrogen, people just assume it has the same level of temperature fluctuation as the oxygen. Now that we are putting uh, a, a, a question on whether temperature fluctuation really exists, we want to test directly on the nitrogen as well. So we are designing this different, having this different ideas, designing different types of surveys to look at a larger sample and hopefully we can correlate how the temperature fluctuation or how the abundance discrepancy correlates with certain galaxy properties, both in the galaxy by galaxy cases, but also within the same galaxies. Now we can spatially resolve them with the integral field units with these 3D spectroscopy. We want to test in a spatial variable sense as well. So here's a summary. We, in slide number 18, we observed a nearby star-forming region Markarian 71. We measured the optical CEL, infrared CEL, and the recombination line oxygen metallicity. 
to our surprise, temperature fluctuation is not the main cause of the systematic metallicity discrepancy in this object. And we were questioning a long time assumption that the temperature fluctuation is really the cause of it. And now that's it. And I'm happy to take questions. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful presentation and for this explanation that you, you know, you describe the methods and, and then, you know, the, the really wonderful um, description of the graphs that, you know, made it really good to understand what the, what the issue is and, and then how you may be addressing it in the future. So, thank um, you. Yeah, it's, it was really interesting. You know, this might be completely, I have other questions written down, but we had speakers here the, uh, this week talking about, a uh, speaker talking about, um, about, you know, how he tries to measure dark matter and he, uh, you know, his kind of Syrian model shows that um, axions are kind of responsible for these optical uh, differences we see when we look at galaxies and so on. And, you know, there, there's this, I can't explain it well. I'm sorry. I have it in my head why, but I don't have <laughs> the right words. <laughs> you know? No, no, no worries. <laughs> because I... I'm not. But anyways, um, basically what he says, a lot of, you know, the dark matter and especially axions would be responsible for <clears throat> things we observe uh, that are kind of um, distorted, basically. Um, could that be here the case too, or is it just not a big enough object and far enough away for things like dark matter to interfere with the data? Sure. So I first, I not an expert in dark matter detections, but dark matter do exist everywhere in the universe. And we deal with them physically constantly. We deal with the effect of dark matter. So, for example, one of the major effects of dark matter in galaxies is that it affects their gravitational potential. So, their so dark matter makes up eighty percent of the gravitational contribution of matters, right? So, it makes up a major contribution, and it will shape galaxies differently if you have different types of uh, of dark matters. So that's why we actually care about the, for example, constraining the outflow rates of these galaxies, the how 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 strong the 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 gas flows out from the galaxy basically, and how fast they flow into the galaxy as well. It's because they depend on the gravitational potential of the galaxies. But in terms of this certain object, this Markarian 71 is very small. It's a star forming region within a dwarf galaxy. So the galaxy itself is already a dwarf galaxy and it's a star from a smaller star forming region inside it. So in that case, this whole thing is affected by dark matter, but not as much as, for example, a huge galaxy cluster. That's when you have 
strong effects of dark matter in there, and you can potentially test different dark matter models. And there's also no black hole close by, right? Uh, that's a good question. So black holes, so the, there are different effects of black holes in galaxies. And the most important way of shaping the larger environment of galaxies is through what we call active galactic nuclei. So these are supermassive black holes in the center of the galaxy. And when they, when these supermassive black holes eat something, when they accrete gas nearby, they, there will be a strong physical reaction and it will blow out a lot of gas as well. So the, it will be very energetic physical reactions and it will blow out some gas and that these kind of energetic reaction will be experienced, will affect the entire um, galaxy itself. But the existence of these supermassive galaxies are most of them exist in very high mass galaxies. So if you have, for example, if you have Milky Way mass galaxies, these all of these Milky Way mass galaxies, almost 100% sure in the center, there's a supermassive black hole. But are they active? Are they active galactic nuclei? Most of them are not currently, but historically, at some point, they were accreting some gas in there and it makes them uh, uh, active galactic nuclei. But in terms of this object, these are this is really small mass galaxy uh, and it's a star-forming region. Are there black holes in it? Almost certainly, because stars dies and high-mass stars dies into these uh, stellar-mass black holes. But stellar-mass black holes are not that effective in affecting the environment. So they are. So the black holes won't be very important in this case as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was asking because we had. Um... A speaker here, he talked about um, how their, his model showed like an indirect evidence for dark matter density spikes around stellar mass black holes. It was like that there's a peak around black holes and they kind of, if let's say two stars um, that um, together approach, then the black hole will get dragged in that one usually gets dragged in and the other one manages to escape. And uh, he right. says that this is kind of, so, okay. Um, <laughs> I tried to cover a few things that came to my mind to explain those differences. Oh, yeah, yeah. For sure. You have thought about before, but I thought it was interesting to ask. And, um, before I go into more questions, uh, that I've written down. I wanted to give Kirko and Abyss also a chance to ask. So please go ahead. You can go ahead, Abyss. I'm a tad bit tied up. Okay, Abyss, go ahead. Thanks, Kirko. Thanks, Kirko. Uh, thanks, Yuhuang. This is um, really interesting work. Um, yeah, I mean, like, <clears throat> metallicity actually sort of it's it's sort of like enigmatic in a way and i'm really glad that you're actually sort of tackling you're tackling this and it's i mean the results are surprising to say the least i do have a few questions so the first one is that you mentioned that you act you, one of the 
you suggested that one of the reasons why there is a discrepancy um, in the temperature fluctuation plots could be fluorescent. So I'm, that got me thinking, is uh, Raman scattering also kind of um, pertinent in sort of like in the plasma level at that energy level? Uh, not that I'm aware of. So I know Raman scattering is very important in biology, for example. Um, but in this physical process, I well, I have to remind myself of the physical process of Raman scattering, but not that I'm aware of it could affect uh, these emission lines very strongly. I see. So uh, what about um, sort of the relationship between the uh, plasma level met metallicity to that of the radiation pressure that keeps the stellar object intact. So is there a direct correlation between the two? And if if so, like, is there sort of like gradation, the more you go into the star, um, the, the core of the star, that you have more metallicity and so on? Ah, that's a good question. So <coughs> this is <laughs> a... a, a reasonably uh so it's a it's a it's a really well understood uh question in astronomy but also in a case that it's very complicated so first whether the ionization levels um changes with for example how distant you are from the stars yes it changes a lot so you can imagine so the major energy level of ionizing these gas is from the stars, and particularly in this case, are very high mass stars because their radiation spectrum are very hard. By hard, I mean there are lots of UV, X-ray radiations that could ionize a nearby gas, and because of that, when you're close to especially high mass stars, you're producing high ionizing state gases like oxygen plus plus, like even three times, so O3 plus could exist nearby these. And when you go further from the center of the stars, you become less ionized, so you discover more oxygen plus. And then even further from the center of the star, you find things that are neutral. So those becomes oxygen with no free electrons floating there, there uh, the hydrogens will become not ionized hydrogen as well. So that's why when we call star forming regions kind of also interchangeably used what we call H2 regions. H2 regions are just ionized hydrogen regions. So all of these star forming regions I'm talking about, these are ionized. And uh, yeah, so that's that. And in terms of whether metallicity changes with how far you are from the center of the galaxies, yes, the metallicity, especially the metallicity patterns, the enrichment patterns, for example, carbon to oxygen as a function of oxygen to hydrogen, they do change, uh, especially from dying stars. So for example, if you have a, a, a planetary nebula, planetary nebula means there's a die, there, a star died in the center, and this process is throw out a lot of materials, and you will have super solar metallicity. So most of the gas in the interstellar medium are subsolar. That means they're 
oxygen to hydrogen ratio is lower than the oxygen to hydrogen ratio of our sun. And the reason is that these gas haven't yet formed into stars and they haven't yet been enriched by a lot of dying stars. Um, but if you're nearby a dying star, you will have super solar methods because these dying stars will throw out a lot of nuclear fused uh, metals into the nearby medium. So they do change. And that's the reason why we want to have an accurate metallicity measurement because we really need to accurately determine the evolutionary path uh, of the gas and also the galaxies. Got it. That actually makes um, sense. I do have one last question that I would like to um, give the mic to Kiriko or Kat if they have questions. Thank you for answering my questions. No, yeah, please no go ahead. I'm sorry, but go ahead, Davis. Yeah, so um, I think like one of um, one of the guests that Katarina was talking about, one which suggested um, that axions might be, because axions are far more smaller, so they tend to act like waves and that kind of mirrors some of their observations that they're not seeing um, sort of like the perfect Einstein ring um, gravitational lensing. Mm -hmm. So that got me thinking, so even in like um, stellar plasma, is there a possibility that uh, the light that you perceive can be polarized by local magnetic fields? And could that be potential input to discern um, sort of like you know, understand the observation lines vis-a-vis -vis the metallicity of the star. That's great. So magnetic fields definitely exist in the interstellar medium. And the way of constraining that is through polarized observation. So if you have a, a polarizing filter that you can put in front of your instrument, for example, you can see how the light is polarized and measure uh, the metallicity, sorry, the, the magnetic field strength in the interstellar medium. But our observations don't have, are actually including all of the light. So we don't, we're not affected by the polarization at all. We just include all sorts of polarization altogether in our collected spectrum. So in that case, the answer is no, but uh, also there are constraints on how strong the I can't give you a, a, an exact answer to that. I have to check, but there are constraints on how strong the metallicity is in the interstellar media. Got it. And you also mentioned that dust might be the, the other um, reason why your observation is not matching to the yeah. hypothesis they put in. So I'm kind of curious, like, is there a possibility to do um, spectroscopy on the dust itself? Because like most of the time it's actually um, transparent to um, far infrared light for the most part, if I'm not mistaken. And by knowing the composition of the dust, can you, can you actually do, subtract that from the uh, actual emission that you get from stars? Ha, so first that Dust is a very complicated thing in astronomy, but um, before I go into the complications here, 
we actually consider the dust whether the dust exists in this object. And one of the advantages that I didn't mention in this talk is that this object we discovered is actually reasonably dust poor. So we know there's little dust in this object. And that makes the case that if we just completely ignore. So first, in our actual final calculations of measuring the metallicity, we actually consider the effect of dust, even though there's there's little if there, there's a significantly less imp impact of dust in this object compared to other types of other kind of um, uh, uh, star forming regions. So particularly in this one, we actually considered the effect and we corrected the, the effect of the dust. But even if we just totally ignore that correction, if we just completely assume there's no dust, we still get a, a, actually a, a, an inconsistent result from the uh, from the different metallicities. And that's actually the beauty of this object as well, is that we it's reasonable dust for so we should be less worried about dust. In terms of how we correct the dust, normally the way we do it is that so hydrogen emits a lot of spectral lines. And uh, these in optical most famous ones are the Balmer emission, the, uh, the H alpha, H beta, and H gamma. So the ratio between these lines are actually not very sensitive to temperature, to the electron density. So the ratio is kind of fixed. And we can compare the observed line ratios and the intrinsic line ratios of these lines. And by doing that, we can correct, we can actually calculate how much dust exists in there, and we can correct the dust effect. And in terms of whether different composition of dust will, af will affect the correction, yes. So there are different, um, so different kind of dust will affect um, the, the, the correction in different wavelengths. And uh, in our work, so if you check the detailed appendix of this public, public published work, we actually consider the possibility of varying slopes of correction. And it turns out it doesn't affect the final result as well. And uh, yeah, so I hope that answers your question. It does. Thank you. Uh, Mike, over to you, Kat. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for those questions and the answers. It was really interesting to listen to the conversation. Um, I will read out a few questions from the chat from our listeners. Um, one is, um, it's interesting how we make estimation of temporal composition. Uh, does astronomy, can we consider ionized carbon as a tracer of assembly of interstellar clouds? Um, if that makes sense, I don't know <laughs> if the question makes sense. As a tracer of assembly of interstellar clouds. So uh, that goes back to the, basically the motivation of why we want to measure things very accurately is that it does, yes. Um, so different, again, different chemicals, so in this case, different metals, different 
carbon so carbon to oxygen ratios nitrogen to oxygen ratios they trace different origins of the nucleosynthesis process and uh, so yes ionized carbon for example carbon to oxygen ratio will tell us about the the example of the interstellar cloud yes Yeah, thank you. And um, Oppenheimer says um, he has a question. Uh, just if it's not related, please uh, let us know. But if you can explain the dependency of metallicity and the likely age of stars. And um, as far as he understands, metallicity is increasing because of stellar nucleosynthesis. That is correct. And that's really just, so yes, if you have a star, if you have a group of stars, if you have stars existing in gas, which is all of the galaxies. So if you have stars, gradually you will have higher oxygen to hydrogen ratio. You have higher carbon to hydrogen ratio. That's just because stars, are giant nuclear reactors, and we will fuse a lot of and create a lot of metals. So yes, metallicity gradually increases in the history of the universe, and that's the a, a huge reason of why we want to measure metallicities accurately in the early universe as well, is that there's so little time in these early galaxies and uh, so one star so one population of stars enrichment actually matters right so current galaxies they have been enriched repeatedly many times but these early galaxies they really been just been enriched a few times so yes and uh, that's so these low metallicity galaxies in the early universe is important and also as I answered the question earlier, that in these dying stars, nearby these dying stars, because stars are creating these metals. So in near, near these dying stars, when they blow out a lot of gas inside the stars, you will have very high metallicity gas in these environments. Yeah, thank you so much for that answer. And um, yeah, if you could, I, I know we've been going uh, a little bit over the hour, but um, if you could maybe give us, um, like as a last question, a peek in the future, what you would like to see, maybe a technology from a technology standpoint, what innovations you would like to see <laughs> um, for your work and um, what basically the next steps are uh, for the future. Thank you. Sure. So that's an interesting question. And actually one, so just go directly. Let's just not take a super large wish list, just a, a small wish list right now. That's very relevant to the current astronomy field is the JWST, right? So the James Webb Space Telescopes um, has been launched and has presented us a lot of measurements, a lot of observations, great 
detailed observations of very early galaxies, very deep into the universe. Coupled, these observations coupled with the ALMA, so Atacama Large, uh, Atacama Large uh, Millimeter Array, which is a radio telescope in Chile, coupled with them. So the, these two telescopes, these two group of instruments will be able to conduct exactly the same measurements that we did in nearby objects, but they are, they are observing very far objects. They are observing what we call redshift over eight objects. So those are right after the Big Bang. Um, and these, they will be able to measure the optical CEL metallicities and the far infrared CEL metallicities simultaneous well. So it's a major test bed now that we can actually test again the the, diff, the what causes the difference of different metallicity measurements and whether temperature fluctuation is really the cause in these very early and young galaxies. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for that answer. And, you know, since you, I had uh, a few more questions, but since one I wanted to kind of address because it might, you know, and people like layman people would like maybe uh, mm -hmm. to have answered, you know, since we are talking about oxygen, uh, do you think that looking for for these uh, metals and measuring accurately oxygen levels does it have anything to do to look for life uh, also in galaxies around us or does it not you know um yeah does it correlate maybe could it, it give some yes certainly so i know it's well it's not directly but we all know, for example, water has a lot of oxygen. So it is when we measure the abundance of oxygen in the interstellar media, these interstellar media will eventually form stars and around these stars we will also form planets. So understand the abundance of oxygen, for example, it's very important to, uh, to, 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 the, to, to, to the theoretical predictions of, for example, how these different kinds of complex molecules really form in the interstellar, in the environment of interstellar medium and also in the environment of planetary disk, pretty uh, protoplanetary disk. So yes, it is having an accurate measurement of metallicity will give us a better understanding of why certain types of planet form and also why for example our solar system has it looks like our solar system right so why life can exist here uh, these are all relevant in some ways well wonderful um thank you so much uh you know i don't want to take more of your time because then you maybe never want to talk with us 
no, but no, it's, it's one <laughs> wonderful questions, I have to say, and thanks for all of those questions. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time and answering all of our questions and um, and for sharing this wonderful work. And we hope, uh, yeah, all the best for the future that you get the equipment and technologies you wish for, also the longer list that you didn't mention. And, um, and yeah, we are very curious to hear uh, what your future work holds, because then we learned about ourselves and about the universe, how life and planets form. So it's really uh, interesting. And uh, yeah, have a wonderful evening um and Thank i hope you. one day you'll come back maybe <laughs> sure i look forward to it thank you katarina for having me and also thank you for the questions uh yeah thank you so much and uh yeah thank you abyss for your questions so they were really interesting i know you just posted a uh, last comment did you did you want to add something to the closing of the room yeah, thanks, Kat. Yeah, so I, I saw a tech talk probably like in 2016. It was a talk about probably advanced civilization may be able to sort of um, mark their presence by changing the metallicity of their native star. That is by giving an unusual amount type of metallicity that they can actually, um, you know, send information to other, um, you know, possible civilizations out there of their presence without, you know, sending radio waves. But I thought I should mention that. That's an amazing idea. Uh, I haven't heard of that, but it's, it would definitely be interesting. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that last, it's like, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> like um, we have a puzzle, another puzzle ahead of us, which is wonderful, which makes life interesting. So thank you for that one. And yeah, again, thank you so much. Um, we wish you all the best. And um, I hope to hear everyone. And uh, if people still have questions that they didn't get answered, uh, send them to me and then I can see, you know, if I can answer them based on the paper, or if I will forward them maybe, you know, also future listeners. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone. Uh, we'll hear you all again next week. And um, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Thank Bye, you. everyone. Goodbye. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.